Well, I'll have to say, I think I got more comments about my joke of suicide last week than than about anything else. So I'm glad I didn't tell you the one about Jesus' recipe for deviled ham. That's all I get? Well, one of my favorite stories from seminary uh, actually comes from a from a behind the scenes, some behind the scenes events at uh, at Grace Church, which is out in Los Angeles, where MacArthur pastors. And um, as you can imagine, in L.A., if there's interesting individuals in Lynchburg, there are some really interesting individuals in uh, in Los Angeles, and they often. Uh, gravitate in off the street and because of that they have some pretty tight security that's there and in one Sunday morning before uh, the preaching service John went to went to his office to get something and the office is is normally closed um, there's uh, uh, on Sunday morning there's nobody there normally there's a receptionist and John's office is in the administration part of the building and you have to be buzzed in and uh, very similar to what we have at TCS. So you can come in a general area, and then if you want to get into the regular part of the school, the secretary has to buzz you in. So there's no secretary this morning, and so there's, there's really no way anybody can get in. But if you're, if you're an employee, then you have a code, and you're able to, to get in. And so John goes to his office, and his office has two rooms. One is where his desk is, and the other is, is like a conference room. Um, and it's separated with a, you know, with a doorway. And so he comes in, and he sits down at his desk, and he says he just gets this feeling that, that he's being watched. And he looks up. Now, again, offices are closed. Nobody else is in there. Nobody should be in there. He just pops in for, for, for a few minutes. And he looks up in his office and in the doorway between his office and the conference room. Um, there's a silhouette of a man standing there, and this man is unclothed, and he's holding a very large stick it's kind of a Sunday morning shock, I would, I would think. And the man looks at him. John makes eye contact with him. And the man looks at him and he says, I have some questions. And John just very quickly says, well, you wait right there and I'll go get someone who can answer those questions for you. And he gets up and he goes out of his office and he gets security and they answered all of his questions on the way to the police station. There was another man who came in church one Sunday morning, pretend like this is church, and I'm up here preaching, a man comes in the back, and when he comes in the back of the church, he is wearing a very large tinfoil hat, big tinfoil hat. And he's dressed normally, has a Bible under his arm, he comes in, and he walks down to about the fourth row, and he sits down like there's absolutely nothing wrong with the way he's dressed, or his hat, or anything else, he takes his hat off and he sets it down beside him. He opens his Bible as if he's going to start taking notes. And security sees him and they come over and they one sits down on one side of him and one on the on the other and says, you know, okay, what's what's the deal, buddy? And um, he says he's wearing this hat to prevent the voices. Uh, they're beaming signals into his brain, and this protects him from from that. And they said, wow, that's really fascinating. Why don't you come outside and, and tell me more about this situation? And so they did, and John keeps right on preaching and doing what he's doing and never missed a beat. So there's some comical stories. As I was thinking about Mark chapter 
chapter 5, about some deranged individuals, possibly demon-possessed. And those were comical because they turned out well. But the story that we're seeing in Mark chapter 5 is downright terrifying. Mark is showing us that Jesus is Lord over nature with the, with the, the, the calming of the storm. And he's also Lord over the demonic world. And, and we're watching him demonstrate that, that power. And the first half of Mark chapter 5 is all about the, the demoniac, how he's described. And so if you're here last week, we walked through that. Really, the, the second part that we're going to go over this morning is the, is the punchline. I like the second part a whole lot better than the, than the first part. As we said last Sunday, this is a very significant passage of Scripture. The reason we're taking two sermons is because it's that significant. Don't think of this just as a, another story where Jesus does something in the Gospels. There are only three displays like this of God's power over the demonic world in all of the Bible. One is when he casts out the demons from heaven, when God vacates heaven from the from, from demonic forces that follow Satan before creation. The other one is right here when God comes to earth and Jesus acts as God, exercises that same power, not over just one demon, but over thousands of demons. And then the third one is at the end of the, of the tribulation period, right before the kingdom, where God binds all of, of Satan and his hosts and binds them for a thousand years before he casts them into the, the lake of fire. Those are the three significant displays in all of the Bible of God's power. And Jesus is exercising one right here. We have one of those passages in, in front of us. And the demons know exactly what happened before creation. They know what is coming at the end. And they also know who Jesus is. And we saw that last week. Whenever they, they see him, they, they bow uh, be before him. And God's promise of salvation comes after that fall in the beginning. And God promises to not only redeem mankind, he promises to redeem creation. And he also promises to take back dominion that was lost to Satan through sin. I mean, we proclaim that at every funeral, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, we talk about how we, we put the body in the ground. It's sown in dishonor, in corruption, but it's going to be raised in glory and in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body, and we proclaim that death and sin, the grave, have no victory over us. Why? Because Jesus has won the victory. And Satan has a certain level of dominion from the fall until Christ comes and ultimately vanquishes uh, the demonic horde and forces, and he obviously accomplishes that conquering power on, on the cross. And so this passage shows us that Jesus has the power to do that. He has the power to redeem mankind, he has the power to redeem nature, and he has the power to take back the dominion lost to, to Satan. He has... He can make the vilest sinner clean. His salvation is complete. He is Lord even over the devil. So um, we read the passage, so we're not going to do that this morning, but I will remind you of the outline. And we, we covered verse, or the, verse 1. We covered the first point last time. Jesus is Lord over demonic forces, this, this passage. So we saw the destructive nature of spiritual wickedness. I mean, the reason that Mark and the reason that the Holy Spirit belabors the condition of this man is to show us exactly what demons want to do, what Satan wants to do. 
in your life, in the life of anyone. It's, he's not someone to play around with. Then we get to see this morning the transforming capability or capacity of the, of the gospel. Jesus saves and he saves to the uttermost. We're going to see this man, the transforming power, what this man looked like after Jesus delivered him. Then we're going to see the fearful effects of unbelief. How did the crowd, how did the people respond? And then we're going to see the astonishing influence of a transformed life. What happens with this man even after he's, after he's saved? So let's look at this transforming capacity or capability. I use those two words interchangeably because the gospel has the capacity to transform. It also has the capability to transform. Mark says that when Jesus gets out of the boat, the disciples, immediately this man from the tombs meets him, and he has an unclean spirit. And the man is described in detail, so when the Lord saves him, we can grasp how great the change was that Jesus made in his life. He's a tomb dweller. He's supernaturally strong. This is all verses 1 through 13. He's wickedly aggressive, he's tormented day and night, he's, he's a sexual deviant, he's naked, he's, he's, uh, no one goes near him, and if they did, they, 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 they get warned with this constant shrieks. I mean, this picture is a, is a picture of a bizarre, a putrid, tormented person, and when he sees Jesus and the disciples, he begins to run at them like he, like he normally does in verse 6. When he sees Jesus from afar, he ran. Your King James or New King James says worshipped him because the word is prostrate. It's, it's, uh, it's to bow down. It's to worship. We would use the term to, to worship or to bow down. And that's what this man does. He bows down. As the demons go down and acknowledging who Jesus is, they're in control of this man, the man goes down, and they call him Son of the Most High God. What, what have I to do with you? In verse 7, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, El Elyon, he uses the term, an Old Testament term for God. This is, this is a declaration of the deity of Christ. Those people who say, liberals, people who deny the Bible, that Jesus didn't claim to be God and the New Testament doesn't claim that he's God. The demons here are declaring in the New Testament that Jesus is God, a very God. And they beg him for three things. The demons beg him for three things. Don't torment us. Look at what it says here in verse, in verse 8. Jesus was saying, come out of the man unclean spirit. And he asked him, what, what, is, what is your name? The end of verse 7, the demons say, I implore you by God. They don't have any power to, to wield. They don't say, I implore you by Satan. Do what we say. I implore you by, by God <laughs> that you do not torment me. And the other Mark and, I mean, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke says, the torment means don't cast us in the abyss and don't do that before the time. Don't, it's not the end yet. They also ask Jesus, not to make them go out of the go out of the region, which is why they want to go into the swine. So three things that they ask Jesus: Don't torment us. Don't cast us into the abyss. Don't do that before the time. Don't make us leave this region, this Gentile region, which which had all kinds of false idols in it, where they could prop up and and and, and do their work and have their way. And the third one is, don't cast us, or, or they, they ask, can you cast us, or will you cast us into the, into the pigs? Now, the abyss in the Bible 
is, is the bottomless pit. It's mentioned in Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and also Jude 6 and 7. And it's a place of incarceration. Um, it's where the demons from Genesis 6 are, are locked up. And the Bible says that whenever God vacated heaven, when he, he threw the demons out of, out of heaven, they had their reign on the earth. But there are certain ones that overstep their boundaries. They overstep the boundaries that God gives them. You can see that Satan is still under the control and under the authority of God in Job. He comes to Job and asks Job, asks God if he can have permission to, to do something with Job. We saw uh, uh, Satan asked the same thing of Jesus, of Peter. And Peter, uh, Jesus gives, gives Satan permission for, uh, to sift Peter like wheat, but he doesn't have absolute control. So God's established the boundaries of Satan and the boundaries of demons, and that's in the earth. And, and we wish those boundaries were a whole lot tighter, <laughs> because spiritual wickedness reigns all over the, all over the world. And those reigns will be, won't just be tighter, they'll be, they'll be put to, to an end. They'll be bound and thrown into the lake of fire in the end. But some of those demons, have, have broken the rules, if you will. They've stepped over the line, and so they're incarcerated. They're held in this place called the abyss until they're thrown in the lake of fire. MacArthur said the abyss is kind of like the vestibule of the lake of fire. For those of you under 40, it's like the, it's like the coffee shop outside of the main church. You know, it's like the, the foyer area on the, uh, the, the lake of fire. And these demons are concerned, they know the time has not yet come, and they're concerned that Jesus is going to incarcerate them. They know that there's a place to go between the fall and the lake of fire, which is the abyss, and they don't, they don't want to go there. Don't send me to that place. And you can see that it's not time, and they haven't broken the rules by, uh, by Jesus' response. Let me give you wood at verse, at verse 9. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered, as the spokesman says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he also begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding near the feeding there near the mountains. And so all of the demons begged him, saying, send us to the swine that we may, that we may enter them. Now, this already strange story gets weirder. And there's a strange question that Jesus asks. He asks the demon, or demons, what is your name? And then there's a real weird request from the demons. Uh, there's a group of pigs over there. Can we go into the pigs? And that's, that's a pretty strange request. Jesus asks the demon's name, and the spokesman answers. And he doesn't give a name. He gives a description. Look at what he says here in verse 8. My name, or... My name is Legion, for we, plural, are, are many. He gives a description. Legion is not a name. It's a, it's a description of a Roman military unit of up to 6,000 men. Now, if you're like me, you may be wondering, why did Jesus ask the, the name? Why did he do that? Did Jesus not know how many demons were there? Did he not know... The name, just like you may not know somebody's name that you meet along the street. I mean, he's God. They're bowing before him as God. He's all, he's all powerful and omniscient. Why does Jesus ask, what is your name? It's obvious that 
He knew what the name was and how many were there. And Jesus does that not for his own sake, but for yours and for mine. Jesus makes them reveal how many demons there are so we can see both the extent of the man's condition and we can also see Jesus demonstrate the magnitude of his power over demons. I mean, he wants us to see that there's not just one demon, there are thousands of demons. Because it's one thing to cast out a single demon in a synagogue, it's another thing to dispense thousands of demons with a single command, which is what the Son of God does here. And I want you to notice that the spokesman of the horde answers the Lord's questions, but all of the demons in chorus are begging him to let them go into the slime. They answer, this is the second part of uh, verse 9, My name is Legion, for we are many. And also, he begged him earnestly, the spokesman does, that he would not send them out of the country. And they see the swine, and verse 12, all of the demons begged him. We are legion, and all begin in this course. Please, 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 uh, don't cast us out of the area, but, but but allow us to go into the swine. Yes, let us go into the swine. It's a the idea is just a, a continual, continual begging. And Jesus, in verse thirteen, gave them permission. Look at verse thirteen. And at once, Jesus gave them permission, dispenses them. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. And there were about 2,000, 2,000 pigs. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and was drowned into the sea. If you you go there today, there's still a little town there that's been excavated and there's a large sheer cliff and the, the pigs dive over that. So the second question, I think that answers why Jesus asked the name, but, but why do they want to go in the pigs? Well, verse 10 says they don't want to leave the area. So they know they're going to have to go out of the man. So they see the pigs, and, and maybe that gives them the opportunity to, to, to stay in the area. But, but then they run the pigs off the cliff, and, and they, they die in the water. So that, that really doesn't answer that, that question. And, then, and even more so for me, why did Jesus let them? Why doesn't Jesus just, just cast them into the pit? Why, wouldn't it be better to have uh, several thousand less demons roaming around? Wouldn't it be better for them to be removed from the earth than removed into the, into, into the pigs? I don't know why they wanted to go into the pigs. Um, other than they still get to exercise their, their destructive power that they wanted to exercise over the man. But I do think the reason that Jesus allows them to do it is it's an outward display of his power. How can we see that there are thousands of demons in this man? It's not just one. And how can we understand, how can we visibly see the extent of Christ's power? He makes them uh, say they're legion, reveal that there's thousands of them, and then he allows them to go into the pigs to demonstrate so we can have an object lesson of the significance of, of this man's possession. And it also demonstrates the demon's purpose. For them to go into the pigs, that was an outward display that they'd left the man and that there were thousands of them. And it also reveals the the demon's destructive purpose. So it demonstrates the man's deliverance. And it demonstrates the deadly destruction of, of demons. They do to the pigs the same thing that they were doing to the man. The pigs have become what the man was. 
and you're going to see a picture of the man. Pigs don't have souls. I, I hate to tell you this, they're going to be animals in heaven, but they don't have souls. They're not made in the, in the image of God. They don't have the same capacity. They don't have the same will, like a will that you have. So when the demons enter into the pigs, they have absolute control. The pigs can't resist in any ways. And the demons act out their ultimate purpose, which is to steal and kill and destroy by running their victims off of the cliff. And that's exactly what, what they do here. Now, I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to give you, going to give you two principles about spiritual wickedness before we, we get to see this transforming power. There are two extremes in dealing with spiritual wickedness. Demons, evil, Satan. The first extreme is pretending that it doesn't exist, treating it lightly. Ah, oh, that's just, you know, I mean, really the devil? Come on. That's foolish. The other extreme is, is overreacting and fearing things that, that you shouldn't. The first is, is foolish, pretending that, that they don't exist. If you don't think that there are wicked forces in the world, that all the things that are happening is just based on man and man's ability. I mean, how do you explain Hitler without evil or demonic forces? And, and how does this play out? You can see it in politics. You can see it everywhere where people are denying absolute evil. How can people that are, that are doing what they're doing in ISIS, how do you explain ISIS without evil? You can't. So if you don't think that they're there, you're already deceived by them. So don't, don't treat it lightly. And I would say don't mess around with overly occultic things, whatever that might be. When I was growing up, it was Ouija boards. Another, tried, to make a, tried to make a comeback. That, that's foolish to deal with those kind of things. There are certain horror movies that exalt Satan. Don't explore false religions like Hinduism or New Age things. You, wanna, you say, well, I have to study that in order to, 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 to defend the faith. Know the truth and you'll be able to discern error. You don't have to study all the ins and outs of Hinduism to do that. Be careful whatever you mess around with, with drugs, even, even legally prescribed them, because the Bible says that pharmacia can lead to wicked things. It's a gateway to destruction. So, so, so be careful. On the flip side, don't overreact. If you see demons in toys or every fantasy movie that, that comes out, you can inadvertently give Satan what he desires, which is fear, which is worship. I mean, the ultimate desire for Satan is for you to worship him rather than God, right? He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be worshipped. And so fear is a form of, of worship. He wants you to fear him rather than God. So what does the Bible say? God says he doesn't want you to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Don't just go around glibly like everything's fine. And don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and also cast the soul into hell. Fear God. You should remember that, that Satan has no power over believers because the God that they serve, they bow before right here in, the, in this passage. And I want you to look at the power of the gospel put on display in this man. So... There's this outward demonstration, the swine flee, in verse 14. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 13. And then the, the people that are keeping the swine, in verse 14, they, they, uh, they flee. And they go into the city and into the country. And then everybody comes to see what happens. 
what's happened. And look at verse 15. They, then they, that's, that's all the townspeople, they come to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And it says, and they were afraid. Now, look at how this man is described. He's the one who had legion. He's sitting. He's clothed and in his right mind. Literally, he's sane. The Greek word means to be sensible, to be to be in control, and the transformation is is total. He was clothed; he was not naked. He's seated; he's not wandering. He's harmless; he's not dangerous. He's quiet; he's not screaming. He's among the living and not the dead. He's peaceful and he's not tormented. I mean, that is a total transformation, and it's permanent. You're going to see in, in just a moment. And it says that when the town people, townspeople saw that, they were, they were afraid. They were, they were terrified. It's the exact same reaction that you find from the disciples whenever they were afraid of the storm, but they were very afraid of Jesus after he demonstrates his power. And what were they afraid of? I mean, they wouldn't even come to this area because of the demon-possessed man. And now they see the power of Jesus on display, and they are they're terrified. And I think in this you see the fearful effects of, of unbelief. I think these, these next few verses contain one of the saddest passages in all of the Bible. And I'll show you that passage when we get there. Look at verse 16. And those who saw it told them, that's the townsfolks, they were afraid. How did this happen? The townspeople, the, 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 the swine herders told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then they began to plead with him, that's Jesus, to depart from the region. Matthew eight thirty four says the whole city came. The whole city comes out. Everybody is drawn by the testimony of what just happened. I mean, you know that crazy guy from the tombs? He's not there anymore. I mean, he begins bowing down. There's a boatload of Jews that came across from Capernaum and, and the, the demon-possessed guy. I mean, think about it. Stephen said, wouldn't you like to have been the disciples to watch that? Yeah, I would have. Think about the, the swine herders who, who are recounting this story. They watched the whole thing from afar. Their pigs are right there. They watch this man screaming. They're, they have, you know, like they're in the peanut gallery. And they're probably talking amongst themselves. They're going, look at what's getting ready to happen to these, these crazy Jewish guys who just got off the boat. Yeah, there he goes. He's running down the hill. And just about few, a few feet before they get to Jesus, the guy falls flat on his face and begins to worship Christ. Jesus speaks something. They see the man get up. No longer screaming, completely in his, in his right mind. He puts on clothes, and all of a sudden their pigs go scree- squealing and run off the cliff. I mean, this is the story that they're telling the townspeople. I mean, you remember that crazy guy in the tombs? I mean, he's bowing down before some man who came over from the Jewish region, and then, and then, and then all of, of Lucas's pigs just dove into the sea. And so they've got to come and see for themselves. 
And they want to find out what happened. And the men herding the pigs, the eyewitnesses tell them everything about it and how it happened, and the people are terrified. And they ask Jesus to to leave. Now, there are some commentators, if you I use that term loosely, that say the reason that they want Jesus to leave is they're mad because they're blaming him for all of the pigs. That's not what the text says. The issue is not the pigs being drowned. They don't really say anything about that. They're they're experiencing what's called the trauma of holiness. They realize that this man is different. They realize that Jesus is not an ordinary man. And whoever he is, his power is, is frightening. Now, think about this. In both stories, you have people afraid before, but after Jesus reveals his power, they're more afraid than the prior situation. Now, think about this specific situation. They would rather have the demon-possessed man in their presence than the Son of God. They were more comfortable around Satan than the work of God. Instead of wanting to hear more, they're... Sin hardened souls ask him to leave. You know why? Because Satan doesn't encroach on their sinful behavior. Why are people more comfortable around the world than in the church? Why, whenever a Christian begins to backslide and begins to get away from the, the Word and get away from the Lord, why do they find other friends, different friends than they had before? Why do they why do they go away from the church? Because they're church people, truth, a salty life, the Word of God. Why do they avoid preaching? Why do they respond to you? Why does an unbeliever respond to you the way that they do whenever you... I mean, they'll talk to you about football, they'll talk to you about the weather, they'll talk to you about religion, anything. But the minute that you mention... You can mention God, you can mention spirituality, but the minute that you mention the name Jesus Christ, what happens with their counseling? It, it totally changes, doesn't it? If they can continue, they can continue in their sin if Satan is around. But you can't do that if God is around because light exposes darkness. That's what's going on in, in the lives of these, of these individuals. So they beg him to depart the region. And Jesus obliges. There are three beggings in this story. The demons beg Jesus not to remove them from the region. The townspeople begged Jesus to leave the region. And the the man who was formerly demon-possessed, who's now saved, begs to go with Jesus and go into whatever region that Jesus enters. And I think verse 18 is, is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Verse 17, they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And verse 18 just simply says, And when he got in the boat... I think it's right up there with the triumphal entry. You remember the triumphal entry where Jesus is finally going to reveal himself as the as the, the, the king of David? He's the Messiah. It's Passover time. He 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 tells the disciples to go get the colt. They do. They set him on the on the colt according to Zechariah nine nine. He descends the Kidron Valley 
All of the people rush out of the temple proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes down, he goes across the Kedron Valley, he comes up through the eastern gate, just like the Messiah is supposed to return. He comes into the Temple Mount, this, this uh, five-football field, you know, large area with the temple in the middle of it. And the Bible says that he looks around and then he leaves. He presents himself as king. He weeps halfway down the hill because he knows what's getting ready to happen. He presents himself as king and they, the Jews, reject him. And here Jesus has presented himself to the Gentile region. They beg him to leave. And just like in, in the, the, the triumphal entry, he looks and he obliges and leaves. In verse 18, he, he gets in the boat and he does not return. They had the Son of God right there. He would have shared the kingdom message with them. He would have received them. He would have saved them. But they beg him to leave and, and he leaves. You know, when I think back on my salvation of not being saved till I was 24, I think about how many times I did this. How many times I sat under the preaching of the word or how many times my mother or somebody else witnessed to me and I was not living for the Lord. I was lost. And how many times I, I, I turned my mind somewhere else, how many times I just turned the, way, turned the Lord away. And if you don't know Him, His power is on display in this passage. And, and you have a choice. You can either respond to that power by saying more, I, I, I want to know more. Or you can respond by that saying, go away. I don't want this conviction. It's 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 too uncomfortable. I want to I want to I want to look at my phone. I want to distract myself in some way because because what's happening right now is uncomfortable. I mean, this man is saying things, and there's something going on in my heart. The Holy Spirit of God is convicting you. He's he's convincing you that Jesus is God. And when Jesus is God, then you realize that that you're not, and that that you're also not right with Him. And in that moment, you have a choice. And if you turn him away, he may leave. And he may never return again. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to... I mean, I mean, in one way, I am. I'm trying to tell you reality. I'm not trying to frighten you to do something. I'm telling you the truth. But if you're a Christian, when you encounter Christ and kind of the power of Christ, you, you have an altogether different, different uh, desire. Look at the astonishing influence of a, of a transformed life. Verse 18. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed, now don't miss that, when he got into the boat, he who had been, past tense, demon-possessed, begged him that, that he might be with him. Brian, who was once a drunk, the Corinthian church member who, who was formerly a homosexual. Such were some of you, but you've been washed. Were, past tense. Fill in your name. Whatever the marking sin was in your life, that, that's past tense. Such were some of you, but, but you've been washed. I love the past tense, and I love the contrast between the people in the region begging Christ to leave and what this, this, this man who had been demon-possessed, who's now saved, what, 
what his response, the one who'd been transformed by Christ. They want Christ to leave. He just wants to be with Jesus. He begged him that he might be with him. I think this is one of the sweetest pictures of after salvation in the Bible. He did the opposite of the demons and the town folk. The man just begs to be wherever Jesus... I don't. Where are you going? I don't care. I, I, it doesn't matter to me. I want to be with you. I want to sit at your feet. I want to learn your words. I want to follow you. That's what a disciple is, isn't it? It's a follower. You want to follow him? You want to be with him. You want to follow his words. You want to do what he commands. And you want to be around him. And the man wants to be with Jesus. And then something else strange happens. Look at verse 19. However, Jesus did not permit him. What? Jesus permits the demons, their request, they want to go in the swine, but he doesn't permit this man to go with him and to be with him. Jesus says no. Why wouldn't he let him come with him? There are two reasons that are that are described in verse 19 and and 20. I think the first reason is because true faith is demonstrated in obedience even when you would rather do something else. I think Jesus tells this man no. And his response is proof that he's truly converted, and it's a lesson to the disciples. Following Christ is not just about getting the benefits. It's also about serving the king. You express your faith. You prove your faith. When you obey the Lord, when you trust his ways, even when you would rather do something else. You trust him that that his ways are better than your ways. Isn't that what Proverbs says? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What's the, what's the second part? Lean not on your own understanding. You trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? Then don't lean on your own understanding. When do you get to put that to the test? Whenever Jesus says no. Whenever you pray for something, when you ask God to do something and God says no, then you get to put your faith on display. What's the faith? God, you must know better than me because I'm pleading with you for this, you say you withhold no good thing from me, but you said no. Or when you plead with God to change something, change your circumstance, whatever it might be, and, and God doesn't answer, God doesn't change the circumstance. That's an opportunity. It's a demonstrate, you demonstrate obedience when you would rather do, do something else. And true faith is, is demonstrated in being a faithful witness. Look at what he says here. Jesus says, no. He did not permit him in verse 19, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy or compassion on you. And verse 20, and he departed and began to proclaim him in Decapolis. Jesus says, no. And he sends this man out to be a missionary. This is the first preacher that Jesus ever sends out. He hasn't even sent the apostles out yet. He hasn't even sent the the disciples out. The 70 haven't gone. The 12 haven't gone. The first witness is a former demon-possessed, uneducated Gentile who doesn't even know the Old Testament. I mean, think about that. And you're going to tell me that your past is going to keep you from being able to do something that God has called you to do if He's called you to do it. I can't serve God. I mean, you don't know what I've done. 
Have you been a a former demon-possessed Gentile running around in the tombs naked? Then you can be a missionary. Look at this man and tell me God can't use you. He has no education. No one else goes with him. It's not two by two. He's alone. He just has his testimony and his overflowing love for the one who saved him. So, So what's your excuse? This man gives us no excuse, does he? Can you imagine this guy's testimony when, when, when he would share with others? Don't I know you? Yeah. Um, used to be that naked guy that ran around the graveyard. I mean, how do you start a testimony like this? You say, that's great. But did the man have any results? Do we know what happened? Turn over to Mark chapter 7 and verse 3. Uh, notice, first of all, in verse 20, he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and, and they marveled. Look over to, to Mark chapter 7, verse 31. I'm sorry. Jesus departs, and he doesn't come back to, to this shore of the Gadarenes. But look at verse 31. This is after Jesus heals the, the Syrophoenician's daughter. After he goes up to Tyre and, and Sidon. And verse 31, and again, departing from the region of, of Tyre and, and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his... Wait a minute. This is a Gentile region. How do they know to bring a deaf person to Jesus? These are Gentiles. They weren't looking for the Messiah. Jesus hadn't been in this area up until this point. They don't have the Internet. He'd only been to the shore one time, and that one time he saved a demoniac. Did the man have the re- have results? He sure did. This man was from Decapolis, and he went and preached the gospel there. There are ten cities. One of those cities is Philadelphia, and the other is Damascus. And the Apostle Paul, on the way to Damascus and Philadelphia, is, is mentioned multiple times in the Bible. And here is the first missionary to that area. And he goes to the ten cities of the Gentiles. And when Jesus finally comes to that area, there are people who are bringing others to him because a demon-possessed man had been a faithful witness. One commentator said, you'll say, well, I was so wicked before, God could never use me. Really? If I knew more about the Bible, I would be obedient. I would witness more if I knew more about if, if I knew more about the Bible. What did this man know? All he knew was that he had been transformed and that Jesus did it. And if you're a Christian, you know that, don't you? And then you're responsible to be as faithful as this formerly demon-possessed man was. Because true faith is demonstrated in obedience. And true faith is demonstrated in being a faithful witness. You a faithful witness? There's something really sweet about that passage. Jesus sends him back to his family and his friends. It's the first time that he's had fellowship with family and friends 
for a long, long time. And Jesus sends him there first. And he gets the experience, the embrace of friends and family, a totally changed man, and then he goes out in the capitalist and shares with, with others. Can you witness to family and friends? I think that's harder than going into Decapolis, isn't it? This man did. Let's see by your heads. So I want to challenge you with three things as you're sitting there, your heads are swimming about this passage and what the Lord has, has said. The first thing I want to challenge you with is if you don't know Christ, God has sent me this morning to tell you that Jesus is God. I'm not being funny, He has. And that whatever sin you're in and whatever circumstances that you think are dominating your life, I, I proclaim to you today, if you will bow the knee to Jesus, He can transform you. And whatever it is that you've done, He can cleanse. And we're going to pray in a moment. We have a prayer room over here, and, and I would just invite you to go there. And somebody will be there to pray with you, and, and you can talk to the Lord. And salvation is available. Now, Christian, I want to talk to you. You might be asking the Lord for something, and his answer might be no. It may be a change of circumstance. It may be something, and, and, and the answer is no. And how you respond to that no or that delay is an evidence of your faith. It's not fun. It's not easy. But, but God has promised his grace is sufficient the Apostle Paul had a demonic torture, and it was a thorn in the flesh. And he begged the Lord three times to remove it, and three times God said, my grace is sufficient, my grace is sufficient. And that's what a no is, my grace is sufficient. And when I choose to, re, to relinquish the circumstances, it will be better. So trust me. Are you here this morning and the Lord wants you to trust Him? And then thirdly, I want to say to you, are you a faithful witness? Now, this man didn't know the Old Testament, but I can promise you one thing. He desired to know it. This man's not an excuse to remain ignorant about the gospel or not train yourself. But the point is that, that where you start is just you love Jesus and you, want to, you know what he's done for you, so you tell him. And then you pursue Christ and you learn whatsoever he's commanded you. All these things. Are you a faithful witness? If not, why not? There's good soil out there. There's good soil. Sow the seed. That, soil, that seed will fall on good soil and God will give the increase, but you have to sow it. And that's our task. Will you do that this week?